Okay, so we're reading from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 to 31, verse 1. If you have one of these Bibles, it's page 577. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Haines, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them, who bring neither of help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, See no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophecy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you will all flee away, till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion, who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will be, then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground 
and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar, with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath, and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent, rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. And you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudburst, thunderstorm and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on him with his punishing club will be to the music of timbrels and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. G'day everyone, my name's Lindsay, I'm one of the ministry apprentices here at St Matthew's. I'd love to chat to you afterwards if we haven't met before. Uh, It'll be a great help to you to have Isaiah 30 open in front of you, and we're going to be working through that passage together tonight. Where do you go for deliverance? When you find yourself in danger, what's your instinct for how to resolve or avoid or overcome this danger? When a bee's hive is under threat, uh, the bee will sting its attacker. But if the attacker is a human, the bee's sting will get stuck in the skin. And as the bee flies away, it leaves its sting behind. Eventually, the bee will die because of the damage that it's done to itself. Uh, If an opossum senses it's in danger, it plays dead. It locks up, paralysed on the ground, its heart rate drops, its breathing slows right down, it nearly stops. Uh, The opossum just lies down and hopes that all of its problems go away. Isaiah 30 is all about where Israel are going for their deliverance. Their instinct is to race off, uh, looking for deliverance in other places. Instead, they should be waiting for God expecting God to deliver them. Verse 18, uh, in the middle there that Rachel read for us, is the turning point of this whole chapter. Let's have a look at it together. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. 
Uh, I don't think many of us will be shocked that God's prophet is telling God's people to look to God for their deliverance. Uh, But in Isaiah 30, we aren't in navigation mode on Google Maps. We're in street view mode. Uh, We know that we need to go to God for deliverance and not to other places. Uh, But what do we see in those places? What's the view from the ground when you decide to go somewhere other than God for deliverance? Because the reality is what we know we should do and what we do are often two different things. See, God is putting the Israelites on blast for the functionality of their faith, for the things they do, the places they look for deliverance when they're under threat. Isaiah 30 isn't just here so that we'd know where to go for deliverance. It's here so that we believe it, so that we want to go to God, so that when we feel threatened, our instinct won't be to fight back or to play dead. It will be to wait for God's deliverance. Uh, Well, the first place that we see Israel head for deliverance is worldly strength. Chapter 30 starts with a woe, Uh, And it's one of many woes in this section of Isaiah. Uh, There's one at the start of chapter 28, at the start of chapter 29, there's one in the middle of 29, there's one at the start of 30 and chapter 31 and chapter 33. Uh, And a woe is the opposite of a blessing. Uh, God in this section of Isaiah is saying distress and trouble are coming for his people because of their sin, because of all the ways that they've turned their backs on God. And if you were living in Jerusalem at this time, you wouldn't have to look too far to see where this trouble and distress might be coming from. Uh, Over the last 10 years, Assyria has wiped out the 10 northern tribes of Israel. The Assyrian king has killed the fighting men, deported the civilians off to Assyria, and repopulated the land with people from all the other nations that he's conquered. If you were from one of the northern tribes of Israel... Chances are you are either in the ground, in captivity, or intermarried so that your family line would die out. And now the next king of Assyria is knocking on the door of Jerusalem. He's laid siege to the cities of Judah, to the southern tribes of Israel, and he wants to do the same to them that's happened to the northern tribes. Here is what God says to his people in that moment. Let's read verse 1 and 2. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out the plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for Pharaoh, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. In 31 verse 1, the next woe is similar. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. The Israelites are under siege and their reaction is to turn to Egypt for help. See, the horses are a symbol of Egypt's strength. In their moment of trouble, they're looking to Pharaoh for protection. But Egypt isn't even the superpower that it used to be. Uh, It's been invaded a few times recently. It was around this time that 
Uh, a king from a neighboring country got installed as the king of Egypt. Uh, going to Egypt isn't some slam dunk military strategy. It's a desperate move by a desperate group of people. And God is saying it is not going to go well for them. That doing this will only cause shame and disgrace. But notice in verse 1 how God describes it. He says that they are heaping sin upon sin. He says that what they're doing isn't just silly, it's sinful. They haven't ended up in that place by accident. They've gone deliberately to a place that God doesn't want them to go. They are putting their trust in something other than God. And so in verse 6 and 7, we get this prophecy, this image of donkeys and camels. They're dodging their way through lions and snakes as they carry Israel's treasure off to Egypt. See, if Israel are going to form this alliance with Egypt, if they're going to make a desperate move for worldly strength, they're going to be giving up their riches. They'll be sending it along this treacherous path with no guarantee that it will get where it needs to go. Then even if it does, Egypt's help will be useless. See, Egypt is Rahab. Rahab is a big, powerful beast, but she's Rahab the do-nothing, a great, powerful beast whose strength isn't enough to blow over a house of cards. When we run to worldly strength, when we stop waiting for God's deliverance, it's costly, it's dangerous, and it's fruitless. The Israelites need rescuing and they're looking around for horses. They need deliverance and they've gone to Rahab, the do-nothing. As Christians, we know that Jesus has rescued us from sin and death. And yet when faced with the threat of trouble, we can react just like the Israelites do. Looking around for worldly strength rather than looking to God who's in control of our worldly circumstances. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we feel under threat, what is our Rahab the do-nothing? We might not be looking to Pharaoh in Egypt for support, but... Are we looking to influencers on our social media streams? Do you have a go-to podcast host, YouTuber, TikToker, Instagrammer, whoever's in your reels, uh, someone who has ideas that seem attractive, who seems strong, someone who picks apart and belittles the people and the things but that you feel threatened by as a Christian? Will we run to those people? Will we align ourselves with worldly strength or will we trust the king who has overcome the world? We might not be looking around for horses, but are we looking around for votes? Is our instinct to form alliances with political factions in governments or on campus who defend the causes that we care about, who provide a security blanket for us in our hour of need? We aren't going to Rahab the do-nothing, 
that is our instinct to run into the arms of conservative, the powerless, or progressive, the useless. What are your horses, your Rahab, the do-nothings, the worldly strength that you run to when you feel desperate? Uni Church, we know how big and strong and powerful God is, how much the Lord Jesus has done for us. But do we believe it? Do we let it change the way that we function, the way we live, the nuts and bolts of how we face trials? Or do we just think that worldly problems need worldly solutions because we aren't expecting God to act? We aren't waiting for him. Now, God can and does use ordinary things like money, like governments, even things like social media for his good purposes. But we shouldn't trust in those things. We shouldn't rely on them. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Well, instead of uh, looking to God for deliverance, the Israelites are looking around for strength and they are running away to comfort. Uh, in Samat's kids, which we have in the mornings, uh, when a kid asks what a prophet is, they get taught that a prophet is someone who speaks God's word to God's people. But when Isaiah speaks to the Israelites, the Israelites don't care that he's speaking God's word because God's word isn't comfortable. Through Isaiah, God is confronting his people He's warning them, challenging them. He's describing their sin to them. He's making them realize the consequences of their sin so that they'll repent, so that they'll turn back to God. We didn't get to read it, but in the next chapter, Isaiah says, return you Israelites to the one you have so greatly revolted against. But the Israelites don't want to hear it. They want comfort. And so they run away from God and run away from their problems. Let's read from verse 9. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. The Israelites don't want to hear it. Even though the threat of invasion is looming, they would rather keep trampling on their relationship with God and drink in the consequences of their sin than let go of their sin and return to God. The temporary pleasure and gain that comes with sin is enough for them. They would rather be comfortable than corrected. They'd rather be indulged than instructed. And here's the thing about sin. Sin works. If you're looking for short-term pleasure, short-term comfort, then sin is the thing for you. Oppression and deceit, as it says in verse 12, it works for a little while whether it's scammers turning prophets or dictators using their power to squash people into submission. Oppression and deceit work. They work just well enough, just long enough, 
for people to start relying on them. The Israelites have found comfort in their sin. They've built it up into a wall, as it says in verse 13, and they are sitting in its shade. They're hoping that it will deliver them. But suddenly, God says, it's going to crack. Like a failing dam wall, the sin they've been hiding behind will violently disappear. And this should make the Israelites think of what's happened to their neighbours in the north who ran away from God, who looked for deliverance in comfort and who were destroyed because of it. And it should make us think of God's final judgement when any place that we're looking for deliverance, anything that we're relying on other than the Lord Jesus, will collapse suddenly If you're a follower of Jesus, it's worth asking yourself if you've been building any walls recently. Have you been hiding in the shade of some hazy business practices? Have you been relying on some deceit, some exaggeration to get ahead at work or in your social circles? Have you been hiding in the comfort of cutting some corners on your tax returns? Are there ways in which you are looking for comfort when you should be looking to God for deliverance. Uh, A good test of that will be how you've felt as we've preached through Isaiah. I've found listening to Isaiah tough going. Uh, It has really heavy, really sobering words for us. But as you've heard Isaiah and heard it preached, have you found yourself wanting to just hear more pleasant things, to shut your ears to Isaiah, Are you just waiting to get back to something a little bit more encouraging, a little bit more pleasant? Have you started to wonder uh, if maybe not all of the Bible really is God's word? Would you rather not be confronted with the thorny parts of the Bible that force us to investigate all the nooks and crannies of our lives and our hearts and admit that there are things we are reliant on other than God? The word pleasant in verse 10 It's like the word smooth. When we hear about God's judgment, we try and smooth it out so that it matches our standards. When our lies catch up with us, when our lust is exposed, when the gossip we spread causes painful fractures in our friendships, God is bringing the high wall down. He's giving us just a little taste of his future judgment in his kindness We saw that last week, judgment is inescapable, that it's for everyone. Even if our secrets stay hidden, even if our ways of deceit and oppression lead to real material gain now, even if we sit in the shade of that wall till the day we die, there is a final day of judgment coming when we'll suddenly see a crack in the wall and it will come tumbling down on us. Will we respond to Isaiah by running away, by going to comfort, by saying to God, just tell us pleasant things? Uni Church, comfort is not the place to look for deliverance. It just offers short term shade, followed by God's judgment. It will leave us flapping in the breeze uh, like a banner on a hill with no protection being beaten and pulled apart, thread by thread. 
Well, Isaiah has shown us two places that the Israelites look for deliverance. They look to strength, they look to comfort. And so God gives them the street view of what real deliverance looks like. Uh, We saw earlier uh, that this whole chapter turns at verse 18. And after verse 18, we see two big things. Real deliverance comes through judgment and real deliverance comes through transformation. Uh, We're going to look at the end of this chapter first uh, and then we'll come back and look at verse 18 and 19 and what follows. Last week we learned that God's judgment, as heavy a thing as it is, is a good thing because it's only through judgment that we have real peace. Uh, And we get a similar idea here in verse 27 to 33. God's victory in judgment is monumental. It's worth celebrating because it's a victory of deliverance. God's victory means people have been rescued from something. Uh, That's why we get these strange words in verse 31 and 32. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing club will be to the music of timbrels and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Real deliverance is only possible because of God's judgment. The Lord coming with burning anger, with a tongue of consuming fire and breath like a rushing torrent, is good news. It's the best news. It's the only news you want to hear if you are relying on God for deliverance you've realised that you need his help and he is the one you're trusting in. God's shown them that Egypt is going to be uh, no help to them, but he's also showing them that Assyria is not going to be a threat to them. Assyria is not going to stand when they hear the majesty of God's voice, when they see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, as it says in verse 30. Uh, If we just think that sin is a small thing, if we think opposition to God is something that God just needs to forgive and forget, uh, then God's judgment seems like this massive overreaction. But opposition to God in any form is a terrible thing. It's at the heart of sin. It's at the heart of the worst things that we see in this world. It's evil. And the fact that God's judgment puts an end to it is something worth celebrating. Uh, Topheth, the place mentioned in verse 33, Topheth was the place you would go to do child sacrifices while you worshipped idols. The place where the worst sins come together. Real deliverance is only possible when God's judgment comes when the name of the Lord comes against people and places like that. Real deliverance comes through judgment, but judgment is not something that God enjoys. What he really wants is to be compassionate. A couple of chapters earlier, in 28, chapter 28, verse 21, God calls judgment his strange work. He calls judgment his alien task. But in chapter 30, verse 18 and 19, we see what God longs for. 
in amongst all the cloudburst and thunderstorm and hail of judgment, we get a glimpse of God's heart. Let's read those verses again, 18 and 19. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Uh, While we're off running to other places, looking uh, to other places than God for deliverance, he is waiting, he is longing to be gracious to us. Uh, The place to go for real deliverance is God's graciousness. It's the easiest place to get to in the world uh, because you don't have to go anywhere. You just have to cry out and God's deliverance will come. Uh, God's deliverance comes when you wait for him. It comes to you. And the street view at God's graciousness is incredible. Uh, It's not just the absence of sin and pain uh, and evil. It is all of those things. Uh, But what happens in God's graciousness is transformation. Uh, In these verses, Isaiah promises a time where God won't need to keep bringing judgment on his people again and again and again because his people will be transformed. Let's pick it up at verse 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You'll throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. When we cry out for God's help, uh, he doesn't just rescue us from worldly predicaments. He rescues us from our biggest problem. He rescues us from our inability to trust him. He transforms us from obstinate, stiff-necked people going our own way to people walking closely with God, hearing and listening to his instruction. Uh, As Christians, the Holy Spirit doesn't just walk behind us. He lives in us, teaching us and transforming us day by day. In the place of God's compassion, we see our sin for what it really is. We throw it away. We're disgusted by it. We celebrate the idea of God dealing with it once and for all. And he doesn't stop there. God's graciousness extends to everything that he has made. God's transformation happens inside us, but it happens outside us as well. Uh, Back at the start of Isaiah in chapter 13, uh, you can read about God's judgment. Uh, And in his judgment, he cuts people off from the sun and the moon. They'll be darkened. They won't be given light. Uh, Last week, we saw that the sun and the moon will be dismayed when compared to the blinding glory of God. But here in chapter 30, when we look at the sun and the moon, we see God's transformation. Let's read from verse 26. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. 
God's deliverance means transformation, not just for situations, but for our hearts. God doesn't just show his glory in creation, he transforms his creation. The world is transformed from a place of curses, where the ground doesn't produce, where animals go without, to a place of blinding glory, of joy and plenty. Where else would you rather go for deliverance than God's graciousness? The promise I got, Isaiah I gave the people has been kept. The enemies of God have been defeated. God's judgment has been completely absorbed and paid for by the death of Jesus. And we rejoice because of that. We rejoice at the defeat of sin and those who oppose God. Even though our experience now is of being under threat, of facing all sorts of pressure and opposition from the world, the spiritual reality is that we are on the other side of the war. The battle is already over. Jesus has already defeated every power at the cross. But the Lord longs to be gracious to us. In his kindness, God has pushed pause on his final judgment. He wants to show us compassion. He wants to transform us. If you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, we are so glad you're here. Uh, And I hope you can hear what is on offer. Uh, As you watch all the different ways that uh, God's people go to the wrong places for deliverance, uh, and as you see us and listen in on us tonight, pointing us back to God, pointing each other back on track, I hope you don't miss what's on offer. Uh, God's message is right there in verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Christians can believe that message because of the Lord Jesus. We can rest because he died on the cross. And when he did that, he won deliverance for us. Christians are looking forward to spending an eternity with him where we've been delivered perfectly from all the trouble and all the pain and all the evil in this world, even the evil in our own hearts. You don't get there by looking around for strength. You don't get it by chasing after comfort. You get deliverance from God by crying out to him. He longs to be gracious to you. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. The promise Isaiah gave has been kept, but it's going to be kept in an even better way. The promise of Isaiah is pointing us forward to a time and a place where these things will be perfect, when his deliverance will be complete, When we feel threatened, our instinct, our hearts want to run off to places of strength or comfort. Let's pray that God would make us people who wait for him. Would we be people expecting God to deliver us? Even as we feel threatened, even as we endure suffering now, even as we battle sin in our own hearts, would we be waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back again? expecting him to set everything right 
to bring perfect justice and perfect transformation. Would Isaiah 30 show us just how silly and just how sinful it is to turn to worldly strength and comfort instead of waiting for our gracious God? Would we know that real deliverance only comes from him? Please pray with me. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus uh, who uh, in rest uh, gives us our salvation. Please help us to be people who wait for you, who expect you to be at work. Please keep us from running off to comfort or to strength. Uh, Keep us trusting in the Lord Jesus until he comes back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.